the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wireworld Pro Audio. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez. We have the game. Starting with Mr. Nick Peck. Well, good evening, Mike. Good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to see you here. And joining us, we have Mr. Brandon Birdside. What's up, Mike? What's up, guys? Good to see everybody. And finally, the Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast, Mr. This is show number 213, Rob Arbiter. Hello, Mike. Hello, everyone. And today we are honored to have on the podcast the one and only Tamara Laurel. She's a musician, an artist, a songwriter, and just one heck of a great person. Tamara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. And today we're going to talk about all kinds of fun stuff. We're going to visit with Tamara because Tamara actually has a really... She has a really great story. She's done a lot. And uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is stage fright because of the fact of uh, it's all part of a story. But it's something that we've all dealt with. And I've been asked, um, you know, several times, you know, do you still get nervous when you do stuff or whatever when you were attacking and things like that? And the answer is yes. <laughs> but we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But before we get going and we talk and we visit with Tamara, I want to bring up something. Um, do any of you guys um, subscribe to any of the um, high-def music streaming services like Tidal or any of the ones that are out there? All right. You need to. Okay? Because I, I got a free uh, subscription trial with these headphones that I bought, and it's life-changing because you could never go back to Spotify because Spotify is so compressed and iTunes is so compressed. But actually, Tidal is... is it's really good. Their master series, it's like listening. It reminded me of the old days when I first got it of just staying up and listening to CDs and records and just for the, for the fact that you just enjoy the sound and the fact that you just enjoy it. And I've been doing some reading and actually um, because of the whole COVID crisis, um, people are actually starting to be aware of the quality of the sound. And they're actually starting to be aware of that you can get better sound quality. And so things like some of the streaming services like Tidal and some of the other ones are actually going up. And I saw this thing in, um, it was a car stereo manufacturer newsletter that they predict that people are going to want to get better car stereos in their car because of the increased demand of the quality of music. I don't know. What do you guys think? Would you try something like that? Would you try something like that, Nick? How important is the sound of your music? Super, super important to me. Um, I sat down once um, about 25 years ago, and we were in a recording studio that had a Yamaha disc clavier piano, and we had a sequence. I don't remember what it was, Chopin or something. And we recorded it into Pro Tools at 44, 48, 96, and 192. Nothing changed just to see what the difference was between them. And 48, 40, 44 and 48 sounded flat. It sounded like what you're used to. 96, all of a sudden the piano had depth. And at 192, every single note in the piano had an individual depth that you could make at. It was absolutely astonishing. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, the more, the more bits, the better. Um, I've wanted to, I've, I've done a lot of research into trying to find some of these different things. And I would like to try Tidal. 
But I use Google Play, and the reason is because I'm always interested in contemporary music, you know, experimental electronic music and stuff that, you know, sold five copies, right? And a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these artists that I follow, you know, Pauline Oliveros and, you know, John Cage and things like that, you can find that stuff on Google Play. So the question that I would have for you, Mike, is have you taken a look? Does Tidal have sort of a deep dugout or is it mostly, you know, sort of the, the commercial and the more popular stuff? Um, Tidal has a lot of music. I'm not going to say every bit of music. Um, um, but I would say it has about 85 to 90% of what I listen to, which is mm. I, I, have, I like electronic music. I like a bunch of different stuff. Um, the cool thing about, I'll tell you, if you're going to try something like this, I'm going to give you guys an app out there that you need to try. And it's called SoundGiz. Now, what that is, is it's a um, playlist converter where you can convert your playlists from one format to another. So like I, can, I converted my playlist from um, Spotify to Tidal and it will import all the songs into the title. So when I, when I open title now, I have all my playlists that I had from Spotify and it'll tell you how many songs it imported. So like if the playlist had, let's say um, 40 songs and it only found like 38, then it will tell you that it only found 38 songs. So those two, when I look at the music that um, it imported. It got probably about 90%, maybe even a little higher than that. I mean, there's definitely some fringe stuff that it didn't have, but man, for the stuff that it did have, it was it was amazing. And I, I would recommend it. Now, the thing is, is there's two levels. There's the normal level and there's the hi-fi level. And the hi-fi level is the one you want, but it's also 20 bucks a month. So mm -hmm. I'm still on a, on a trial and I'm in love with it still. So I'm like, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But you know, so come November when it's time to pay pay up, um, we'll have to see how important that was. But I'll tell you, man, it's made everything sound better. It's made my system sound better. It's made my car stereo sound better. Like because you can stream at the high level, so it's it's pretty amazing. If, especially if you use those two uh, products. Um, and just so you know, Sound is they um, there's a free version where you can do a playlist at a time, and then there's a paid version which is like four bucks a month where you can do. Um, all your playlists in a bulk conversion. So I paid for one month and just did all my playlists and then kept on going. Um, but it's, I tell you, it's pretty amazing. The sound quality is like you remember. I mean, the one big thing on, on MP3s and is like nobody can get symbols correct, right? I mean, the MP4, right. the Apple version is a little bit better on symbols, but here it's so amazing. It's like it's all nice and tight and it's inspiring. It's just really, I mean, it's just really super inspiring, and it, and I and for me the quality of the sound, it like, uh, like I was just like, oh my goodness, this is so good. But you know, I just I care about sound quality. Tamara, what about you? How, how important is sound quality to you? Let's bring you in on the conversation. Oh, I'm probably the worst person to ask about this because <laughs> nature of my job. I mean, I'm so desensitized. Like we write a song in the room, and then somebody records it into their iPhone, and that's what we're pitching sometimes. So like I have to hear the magic of a song that is like a guitar in like a big empty room into an iPhone. Like that's sometimes what gets the song cut by an artist. So I am the wrong person to ask. I think Spotify <laughs> my Bluetooth speaker sounds incredible compared to what I'm working with every day. So maybe yeah. as I get a little more sophisticated as a producer, that'll change. 
Yeah, but if you if you well, you should try title. See if it see if it'll if it changes your opinion because you're actually perfect because you're the kind of customer that they want to they want to flip. They want to flip. You know, normal people to to like, hey, let's get you interested in high quality music. So I'd be curious to see if it sounds better. How about you, Rob? What about you? Is that would it make any difference? Are you? I mean, it depends. If I'm if I'm in like audiophile mode and trying to listen to stuff really critically, then it would make a difference. But most of the time, I just have gotten used to convenience, uh, and I just want whatever has. I, I'm not so concerned about the quality as I am just have everything that I want to hear, have it easy to get to. Uh, I mean, if I'm listening in the studio or listening to anything, you know, critically, then yeah. But I mean, I don't even listen to music in the car. I put on talk radio, so I may not be the right one to ask either. Well, the wrong people to ask are here. Sorry, title. I'm trying. I'm trying to help you out. Hey, you know what? The universe has already proven that convenience wins. It's not like that's even a debate. So. I know. I know. Hey, how about you, Brandon? How important is music? How, would you try something like yeah. that? Yeah, I would try it. I'm with Rob on that, though. I mean, when I want to listen to something for analysis or something, I'm in the studio, um, which is in my garage, so it's close by. And if uh, you know, I really want to have that chill type of, you know, real listening experience, I put on my vinyl and run it through my, mm. my Therbionic preamps and, and listen to it that way. Everything sounds really nice. Um, but I do have Spotify. The convenience is, you know, unparalleled at this point. And uh, I was trying to explain to my son the other day what we used to have to do to go to record stores <laughs> and search for tapes or CDs so or whatever. True. Yeah, I miss those days. They'll though. never know it. Yeah, I miss it. It was so fun going and knowing you had 20 bucks and you go to Rasputin's or Amoeba Music or whatever and just go look through all of the vinyl or all of the CDs and walk away clutching something and running home and being so excited to put it on and listen to it. But you know what? Now your kids will say, wow, you used to leave the house? <laughs> hey, Mike, while we were talking about it, because I wanted to check and see, I, I looked online. So the hi-fi version of Tidal is 1644 FLAC. So it's basically the, the same thing as a 1644 compact disc, PCM. The only difference is that there's a certain lossless data compression that they use to get it down the pipe. But there, there is no MP3. There is no lossy uh, encoding there that perceptually you're not supposed to notice what you actually do. It's, it's just so funny to me that, you know, CD quality that was pooped on is now like the gold standard we're it's all aiming for. Not the gold standard as far as I'm concerned. Do you guys remember DVD audio? Do you remember going out and buying oh, a player oh, and getting all those better. albums well, again? I remember listening to it over at uh, Larry Dropa's uh, place. He had a really nice uh, DVD audio player. And the first time I heard that, I was just like, it was, it was chills. It was almost as good as the Atmos. But when I heard you Atmos, mean, And you mean the Eagles demo, right? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I sat in the same seat. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. Well, anyhow, I just want to uh, turn everybody out there onto those two things. If, you, if it if it matters to you, I mean, there really is a difference. You can you can A B M, and you'll hear it's a little bit more rounded. The symbols sound better. It's just a better recording um, that they're playing for you. And if you want to convert your playlist because you spend all that time and effort, use use Soundiz. It's S O S O U N D I I Z. Um, that'll convert, and you can actually convert from Spotify to Google to Apple to all these different formats. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. Well, hey, listen, we're going to move on. And um, let me ask you guys a question. And don't answer yet, but I'm just going to, I just, we're just going to open it up and then 
Um, I'll come back around. But think about a time in your career when you got really, really nervous because that's the question I'm going to ask you to answer. You got really, really nervous. And leading on to that, um, we're going to visit right now with Tamara Laura. Tamara is an artist from Nashville. She has a great story. Um, she, you know, did her own thing, and now she's the songwriter. And in between, she worked for Live Nation, right? You worked, you did some stuff for Live Nation in New York, and got affected by the whole COVID thing, and then left New York and into Nashville. Um, Tamara, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, let's talk a little bit about about your your music career, just really quick. Just why don't you just give us a little overview on, on what you did and where you played and, and your band and stuff. Sure. So I guess growing up, I thought, I mean, I loved writing songs. So I thought I, you know, naturally would want to be a recording artist. Um, I was in musicals, things like that. So I thought I like being in musicals. I like writing songs. I'll be a recording artist. Um, so I released a debut EP, I think in like 2014. It like picked up, uh, got picked up in Europe. I got to do some fun endorsement deals, do some fun touring, just like a lot of incredible opportunities. And then released a follow-up album, same thing. It was great. But I just like didn't like performing. And I thought that that was something that every artist hated. And I remember talking to one of somebody I was like sharing a bill with, like, oh, this like sucks, right? And they were like, no, this is the best part. You don't, you don't like this. And I was like, you enjoy playing these shows. Like, this is something you enjoy. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, I hate this. And that was like a moment I had to really reevaluate what parts of this do I like. I like writing songs. I like being in the studio. So I moved to Nashville and now strictly write songs and work in the studio. So I love it. I let me tell you, she's really good. I actually met Tamara through John Cirillo, who was on our podcast. I reached out to him because I was working on some music. And I said, John, um, I'm looking for a lyricist, a lyricist and then someone who could um, do a little bit of top lighting and on some melodies and things like that. And he says, I know just the person for you. And so he recommended Tamara. And then we kind of got together. And we knocked out, we had the song, and we knocked it out in like, less than four hours, boom, we had all the, the lyrics done to it. And it was actually, it's actually pretty good. And as soon as it gets all done, we'll, we'll play it. Um, not now, obviously, but, um, but it's really great. And it just brought up a lot of things about um, what's happening right now, the, the way you can collaborate, but how collaboration and songwriting actually, I think is in a better spot because it's forcing people online and you're getting to meet new people. And, and there's a well, time there where you're kind of in this little circle and you kind of stay in your little circle. But Tamara, why don't you tell us how has, has COVID and just being home, how has that affected you as a songwriter and, and your collaborations? It's actually been wild. Like the most profound thing I think I've ever seen. You know, I've been in Nashville. This is my third year. And you have your crew, they call it your class that you come up with. One person in your class starts becoming successful, you know, water rises to its current level, you all kind of come up together. And what happened is, as you all know, March 13th around then, like the world kind of stopped. And that was my last session in person. And that Monday, all of us had rights scheduled and everything got canceled. And that whole week, it was kind of like, well, if this goes on for a while, you know, are we just going to sit here stagnant in our homes doing nothing? And we're all creatives. So, you know, that, that doesn't really fly. So I would say like a handful of people really 
dove into the Zoom, the Skype, the FaceTime rights, and then a half of half the people kind of, I guess, like decided to take a break and sit out. And I was like, I'm going to go crazy sitting in my place. So let's just try some of these with Zoom, talk some of my regular co-writers into it. And, you know, the first couple are a little awkward. You can't, the beauty of being in the room with someone is you can harmonize at the same time. You can do melodies on top of melodies. One person plays, the other person sings. What you all were talking about earlier is, you know, with the way the audio delay, you can't, it's one person at a time. It's, it's very tricky. Um, but every single time I'd, I'd show up to the Zoom thinking there's no way this is going to be a successful situation and we'd leave with like an incredible song. And I think that people actually have felt, the artists that I've written with and the other writers have felt more comfortable because we're all in our own homes, you know? Everyone's wearing pajamas from like <laughs> waist down. So it's kind of like, you're comfortable, you're vulnerable, which is important. And then the other side of things is, you know, some of my most frequent collaborators live in other countries now. They had to go home. They were essentially deported due to COVID or called back home. And, you know, it's a shame to lose those creative connections. So we thought, let's just do Skype, a Skype right or a Zoom right. And what that has led to is I'm now writing with, you know, six artists all over the world that I never would have met if it wasn't for COVID. And I went into this, a very like green songwriter six months ago with no artist cuts confirmed. And I'm emerging six months later with eight cuts coming out, seven of which are, or six of which are international, which is just wild. And I think anytime I get down about 2020, um, as I'm sure we all feel, it's kind of like, well, it's been a good year for the willing virtual songwriter to kind of still be able to create in like a much bigger um, spectrum than ever before. Hey, tell us about, um, uh, cause I learned this from you, the, the, like, what's a session like, like, tell us about the length that you guys work and what are the uh, parameters sure. when you, when you go and do a session. So you book out for four hours, but you hope it's done in three. And um, basically, you know, it's, it's usually two writers and one artist. That's, that's the ideal formula. You show up usually in person, but now on Zoom, you kind of talk about life for a little while and people come in with different ideas. You have your melody guy. You'll have, you know, one of my really most, one of my most frequent collaborators is incredible with melodies and always comes in. I don't ever prepare a melody for that, right? But some people, I come in with a melody. Um, I try to always come in with a few hooks, which is like the lyrical, I guess, like uh, tag of the song. And um, I try to come in with a couple of those um, tailored to the artist or the writers that you're working with. Um, it's all psychological. It's just who you're in the room with. And being a songwriter specifically, it's like how you can channel someone else's story. So it's it's pretty fun. I just find this whole, the way you talk about class and the whole thing, it was, it's such a learning experience because you have your class, right? But then there's literally all these other classes all over the place, right? Like this is like, this is not unique to your situation. There's a lot of people doing this in Nashville. It's like, it's like songwriting as like this industry. You always, you always think about songwriting is the lone soul, you know, you know, at the piano or the guitar, but you have these songs, like some of these hit songs, they just don't happen. They have a lot of collaborators and it's, it's, it's a, it's like a machine. Let me ask you a question. Do you think having this machine 
you think it tends to make the songs sound alike or do you think it gives it a little bit more variety? I think it really depends on who's producing. Um, they're definitely like one of my most frequent collaborators who's great at melody. A lot of his melodies are in the same wheelhouse. So if he's writing with like three different artists, the same age, kind of the same demographic at the same time, their songs might sound like a little similar, but I think there's like beauty in that. Jack Antonoff, I don't know if you're familiar. He was in Fun. He's in Bleachers. He's also produced Lord, Lana Del Rey, Taylor Swift, um, The Chicks, like all of these people lately. He's kind of had a hand in everything. And there's a bit of like his soul in each part of it. Um, but I think that the whole pop formulaic thing is like a little bit dated. It's kind of like the early 2000s sort of thing. There's There are no barriers to entry for somebody writing a song in their bedroom, getting someone to produce it in another bedroom and then putting it on Spotify within 24 hours. So the beauty of that is just the diversification of like all sorts of popular music sounds. So I think that, yeah, if you're writing with the same people all the time about the same things, yeah, it's going to all sound the same. But that's why we all kind of cross pollinate, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hey Rob, um, have you ever been involved in that type of a songwriting structure when you've written all your songs? Oh yeah, all the time. I mean, not pre, not post pandemic so much. No, but yeah, I when, I, that. when I was producing that band, The Misses in Austin, and I would fly down there, and we would do our collaborative writing sessions, and uh, we would sometimes introduce new people. I mean, I was basically writing with the group, which was the five women of the band. But um, we would sometimes bring in outside influences. We'd sometimes pare down the group and write with smaller subsections of the group just to get a little bit different. And I was the producer as well. So I, I would have sort of my idea of what the whole album was going to sound like. But I would purposely try to put us in different creative headspaces so that everything we wrote didn't sound the same because we were, you know, writing with the same core band. But it was also a band that wanted to have a lot of range in their styles. They didn't want it to sound like, you know, the album we were producing at the time. They didn't want it to sound like an album of 10 songs that came from the exact same people. Um, so yeah, it's important to try to keep it fresh. It is very easy to fall into the trap of things sounding the same. And especially if you start to have success, it's very easy to fall into the trap of wanting everything to sound like your hit because you think that's what the public wants when the truth is that doesn't usually work. Right. What about back in the, you know, let's go farther back when you were writing way back and you're doing stuff with Michael and Stevie and back then, was it mainly you and somebody else or were you coming together in a group? to do those type of rights. Well, the funny thing is like when I was writing with Michael Jackson, yeah, I actually found that, I mean, there's a lot of pressure because you can't do something crappy, but <laughs> I didn't find it difficult. Once I got over the freak out of, oh, Michael Jackson's in my living room and we're writing a song together. Once yeah. I got past all that, um, it actually, he was easy to write for because it wasn't hard for me to imagine what he would sound like singing whatever we were working on. Like I, I could hear him in my head because I was so familiar with his voice. Same with Stevie Wonder or Whitney Houston or Ray Charles or any of these people. Like you've heard them for a million years in your head. And so you can kind of picture them singing your song. The thing that was a freak out with Michael is that he would be dancing and coming up with the choreography at the same time I'm programming the beat. So it, it's very <laughs> different than just sitting with a guitar or a keyboard and singing and coming up with chords. Cause he's actually like acting out the music video while we're playing the song and I would feed off of that. Like I would see if I'm playing a beat and all of a sudden he's 
going crazy, it's like, okay, that's the beat, you know, and, and no words have to even be spoken. You could just tell when you're dealing with someone who's so physical and is acting out the song in real time. I don't know. I mean, it was super fun, but I, it was not as stressful as I thought it would be. It was actually pretty easy. I would, I would also say like, to your point, when you're with like, when I'm writing with like, a more established artist, it's like, my only job is to channel their greatness because obviously they're great. They're proven. They're artistic. But sometimes when I'm writing with like a baby artist or like a baby writer, those are the most stressful situations because it's like, I don't, I mean, I never wrote with Michael Jackson clearly, but I don't want to step on his toes and like ruin his artistic process. So we're going to use more of his input and I'm just going to like shape it into what it needs to be. Whereas with like a baby artist, you're like, this is an internal rhyme. We can't do that because we need a chorus here, you know? Yeah, and the truth is with, with major artists like that too, they come with such a, a confidence. Yes. Michael Jackson wasn't worried about impressing me, you know? He was right. confident. <laughs> and, and he should have so, been. Well, yeah. But I mean, when you work with a baby artist, as I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of artist development and brought new people out too. And then you're having to help them find their sound. Like, you know... And are. what's that and who they are and what their brand is and i'm like they don't they, <laughs> they don't have a persona yet they don't even understand maybe who they are musically and especially when i've worked with kids you know it's definitely true um but yeah when you work with someone super established i don't know it, it's it's, it's, easy. it's easier yes. i won't say it's easy because the other thing is the expectation of quality though is like through the roof yeah that's true i that's also true. Somebody writing with a mid-level artist with an incredible voice. Like there's something about an incredible voice that makes a lot of, like a, a mediocre song sound fantastic. Always. And also your, your melody, you know, your melodies can be so much more diverse than if you're writing with somebody who kind of has like a, a more limited range. So it's like all sorts of factors, but yeah, it's crazy. You would think that like the bigger artists would be stressful, but they're, they like know what they're doing. Well, the other funny thing that I remember, and I've had a wide range of experience with this, like if I'm doing something with Michael or Stevie or somebody who's like super established, they like, you can hand Stevie a song in any key and he will sing it and it will be the most awesome thing you've ever heard in your life. Right. Michael to a certain extent was the same thing. Like he wasn't worried about the key. He would go by feel like this feels good in my body or whatever. Yeah. Um, but when you're dealing with a new artist, especially someone who doesn't understand vocal mechanics as much or their own voice as much, you have to, as you're writing the song, I mean, let's face it, the same song in different keys is often a different song. And yeah. so, like, a lot of times, if I'm working with a real brand new artist, I'm first figuring out, like, what kind of intervals sound good in your voice? Where does your voice sound good and strong? Where does it sound good when you go from high to low and low to high? Because we need to write a song that's going to show off your transitions, and it has to be in your key. Because if we write a song in the wrong key, it's never going to be in right for your voice. So there's all those considerations with someone new, but I will say when you manage to do all that with someone new, like the, the group in Austin had some pretty good success and ended up on the national stage for a while. When you take somebody and, and they were a group, they're the first to admit it. It was five housewives who came <laughs> together in their forties and said, we're going to be a band. And they call themselves the Mrs. MRS period because wow. they were all married women or almost married one of them. Um, and, <laughs> but to take a group that basically had to learn to play their instruments because they decided they wanted to be a band and fast forward a couple of years and they're on Good Morning America or they're getting all this attention. I don't know. In a lot of ways to me, that 
maybe it's not as good a story as saying you work with Michael Jackson, but to me, it was a lot more rewarding because we really started from a nugget of talent and dedication, but really starting from scratch. And I don't know, to me, that's a little more fulfilling. There's no, definitely... I... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say there's a, a girl, I, this incredible artist I write with in Canada who's 18 and doesn't understand how talented she is. And again, to your point, that's the most like fulfilling thing because you're showing, you're, you're showing them these tips and tricks that they like don't know yet and helping them develop those songwriting skills. And you're right. It's like, it's sometimes a bit more stressful, but yeah, it is a lot more rewarding. And the truth is, it's what the record labels used to do decades ago. Like, that's what A&R was. That's what artist development was. And now nobody wants to spend the money or time to do it. But if you manage to spend your own time and money to do it, it's still, to me, the coolest part of the music business. I've definitely... Well, sorry. Go, go, go ahead. I was going to say I've definitely developed a passion over the last year. I've been introduced to a lot of, like, young women artists in Nashville and... As you, I'm sure, know, Nashville's having, like, a difficult moment with women in the industry right now. And, you know, as a female, female songwriter, I've, like, developed a passion for writing with and working with these younger women to help them feel confident to say what they want to say. And doing a little bit of artist development, I think that's so rewarding, especially when they have so much talent and they're so young. And it's, it's amazing. Rob, I remember when you went on that journey with the missus and actually – we pretty much documented a lot of that on the podcast because you would always give us updates. So somewhere around, I think around 140 to 150, if you want to start the journey with Rob and the missus. Yeah. And that journey, it was, it was about three and a half years and I went to Austin 62 times. I remember that number. (laughs) they They came out here actually and recorded in this very room for part of it. But for the most part, we recorded in Austin and, uh, I got to know Austin. I have a sister in Austin, so it was fun to be with family. Um, but yeah, that was quite a journey. And I had never worked, I had never developed a band like that before. I'd worked with a lot of solos, but that was the first actual like garage band sort of a project. And it was, it was great. Did you get but, the moment of like seeing them in a, a big show, hearing it all, like the full circle, like we yeah. did it. <laughs> Yeah. And it was incredible. And and we did a lot of shows and, and I was actually their live, uh, their live mixer for a while too. Cause I wanted to make sure the show sounded like the albums. But yeah, I got to see them do a lot of big stuff. I mean, we we took over the top of uh, Rockefeller Center and threw a huge event and they performed. And yeah, we did a bunch of things that were just super mega exciting and huge. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it was quite a journey uh, for a long time. Well, hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to pivot here to this other part of, of Tamara's story, which I really want to kind of get into. And that was the the whole stage fright and the anxiety of performing. And before we examine that a little bit more, Tamara, let me ask, um, Nick, you ever have stage fright? You ever, are you ever, you ever been afraid up there? Well, uh, I don't know that I ever had stage fright per se, but, you know, I've probably played 500 gigs in my life and I've led you know, three or four bands. And so I'm used to being out in front. And what I remember from all of those things are the little flubs, the little places where I fell on my face. And we're talking about stuff from, you know, 
the early 90s and the late 80s and I still remember these these awful moments like uh, you know one time when um, I was I, I, I hadn't prepared anything and so I was searching for something to say and so I said hey uh, what's the what's the score you know to the current game to the current Giants game up in the Bay Area and of course the game had ended like three hours earlier so <laughs> Showed what a sports guy I was, um, but uh, you know, I, you can't you can't go out on stage and put yourself out there and not make mistakes and not do things that, um, as Tamara was saying earlier, that you notice and that the vast majority of other people don't notice. But you know, I still beat myself up for you know flubs that I made playing at a festival here in LA in 1994. It's really time for that guilt to go away, but yeah, you know, it is yeah. time. I release you. You've been released. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so much better now. Thank you, hey, Brandon. How about you? Nerves? Oh, oh yeah, all kinds of nerves. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, even back to like my early twenties when I did my first open mic nights or anything like that, and uh, back in my singer songwriter days, and then you know it was it was terrifying, you know. And I, I learned over time that I was. I was a songwriter, but you don't have to be a performer. I wasn't comfortable on stage. I wasn't comfortable in the spotlight. And so now, you know, I write instrumental music for movie trailers and sound design and stuff. And I found that path over time. But it was, there was one moment where uh, I said, I'll, I'll never go on stage again. <laughs> we had, it was when I was in a, this electro rock band and we prepped uh, <laughs> not just an audio show, but a whole visual show and everything. And uh it was being sequenced out of uh, Ableton going to another laptop, sequencing a whole visual show um, projected thing. And then uh, halfway through the set, uh, some guy who worked there backstage tripped over the cord and pulled the cord out that went to my computer and it completely shut it down and it somehow uh, corrupted the file at the same time. So we couldn't even, or actually, no, now that I'm remembering it, that happened in rehearsal. And uh, what happened, it corrupted the file. So I opened up a previous file. And then in the middle of the show, I, I had forgot that I had like frozen tracks and, you know, that in the one we were performing with. And so there wasn't enough CPU and it just like glitched out and shut down five songs into it. And we're like, thank you. Good night. That's, <laughs> uh, that's but, nightmare. nightmare. Yeah, it was it was a nightmare, but it was it was heartbreaking. But at the same time, it was like, all right, you know what? I'm done with that. I'm not going to try to do that anymore. And, and I love what I'm doing now. So it's it's all good. How about you, Rob? Oh, yeah. I have a few. I mean, I didn't used to get nervous much. And, and still, like, I, don't, I can get on stage and talk to a thousand people, you know, at a conference without a script, and I'm totally comfortable doing that. Right. And when I would be on stage, most of my stage experience was with Stevie Wonder. And, and when I'd be on stage with him, I usually was surrounded with my technology and had stuff to do. So I wasn't so much focused on the audience. And, you know, you do hundreds and hundreds of shows, you, you kind of get used to anything. But there were a few moments, and I, I think I've told these stories before. There was one time when, you know, every now and then Stevie would want to embarrass someone in the band. So we'd have them hand us a mic and force us to sing, which I was comfortable doing anything on stage, but not singing. <laughs> and I remember I had a hard time with it. And Brad, uh, the keyboard player uh, at one point was had to sing. I just called to say, I love you. Those were moments of extreme stage fright. I think I only had to do it once, maybe twice, but being handed the mic when you're not a singer and you look out and there's a whole crowd, you know, really enjoying the, the heck out of this. That was stage fright. Another thing, I didn't mind big crowds and I had done a lot of big shows with Stevie, but when we did live eight, the huge concert in, I think it was 2005 ish. 
we did it. We were in Philadelphia on the steps of the art museum where Rocky ran up and there were a million people in attendance. And I had done shows with him as big as maybe a quarter million in Chicago. I think we did once. But when you actually stand there and look out at a million people, that's a lot of people. And you try to pretend that they're not individuals and you just see them as a sea. But I actually, I felt my spine tingling. As soon as we walked out on that stage, that made me nervous. But I told the story of the thing that's made me more nervous than anything in my, in my entire career. And that is at the Kennedy Center Honors. It had to be 1987 or eight. I hadn't been with Stevie all that long. Um, and they were honoring Ray Charles. And Stevie was one of the people performing and honoring him. And, you know, at the Kennedy Center Honors, they always have other celebrities play the songs of whoever's being honored. And so Stevie was going to perform. And back in those days, it was the Lynn 9000 was the sequencer. And I know I've told this story. But the Lynn 9000, I had to watch it like a hawk because it would crash for no reason. Sometimes it wouldn't boot up. It wouldn't load the floppy disk. At least we were past cassette tapes at that point. It was floppy disks. And I remember about the, the show was going on. We were at the Kennedy Center. And all the luminaries were there and we're in the middle of the show. And of course, it's being recorded live for TV, but it's also a live show for all these luminaries. And I see the Lynn 9000 die. And Stevie is supposed to go on in like five minutes. And I can see that the, the light went out on Lynn 9000, which was how you knew it had died. So I had to go out and reboot it and load. I think it was Part-Time Lover was the song because it was a pretty big hit back then. This is a long time ago. And I remember in my full tuxedo, I crawled out on stage out to the riser where the Lynn 9000 was because we had to keep it near him because he had to start it himself. And so I had a floppy disk and I'm in my tuxedo and I'm in my early 20s. Like I'm freaking out. I've never even <laughs> been in show business before. And here I am trying to sports TV. I crawl out on stage and I look up and Quincy Jones is uh, standing there and he's the one doing the kind of the introductions. And I look out in the crowd and I see you know, Lucille Ball and Miles Davis and all these big celebrities. But then I look right in the middle and directly at eye level with me is President Reagan at the time uh. and Nancy. And they're sitting there like looking straight at me. <laughs> and that's when I think I told the story before uh, Quincy Jones made the joke. He looked over and he said, ladies and gentlemen, craft work, you know, <laughs> but I was there feverishly trying to reboot the Lynn 9000, load the floppy, and I hear it going click, click, click as it's loading track by track by track. And I'm thinking, this is the end of, not my career, this is the end of my life if this thing doesn't load. I'm actually going to expire right here on stage at the Kennedy Center. And as was typical with Stevie and happened a million times, the disc loaded right as he said, ladies and gentlemen, Stevie Wonder, because they didn't realize there was a problem. They were just continuing. I just had to be ready in time. So they, uh, Quincy said, ladies and gentlemen, Stevie Wonder, Right when he said it, it said part-time lover on the screen, so I knew it was loaded. Stevie came out, performed. Nobody ever realized anything was wrong. I was soaked. It looked like I had just showered in my tuxedo. I was so <laughs> nervous. Uh, so that, by far, is the worst stage fright I've ever had. And honestly, after that, I kind of thought, you know what? Nothing's ever going to be worse than that. Literally, <laughs> there can be nothing worse. So I, I'm done. Like at age 23 or whatever, I've had the worst stage fright I'm ever going to have. And, and it kind of numbed me. <laughs> uh, wow I know it's a long story but no it's worth it <laughs> hey well i'll tell you what my i you know being that i teched for about eight years I, I was never bothered about going on stage and performing like saving the day with the keyboard things like that actually one big moment that you could hear on stevie wonders 
one of his CDs, the Natural Wonder CD, is uh, there was a stuck note on one of the keyboards, and it was on um, one of the songs. Oh, what song was it? Uh, uh, Living for the City, no. I don't know. I'll, I'll figure it out which one. Anyhow, there was a stuck note that happened on Isaiah's keyboard, and I literally, within like two bars, knew it was like a stuck note, and I ran on stage, and I hit the panic button on his controller, <laughs> and if you listen to Natural Wonder, it stuck in the right key, so it made it all the way to the final it thing. to the live album. <laughs> yeah, so that was, but see, that didn't really bother me, because as a tech, you're kind of worried about that, but one thing that got me super nervous is when I was actually touring with Martin Page, and I not only did I tech, but I was side stage keyboard player. Well, we were playing this big concert, multi-band concert at the Boston Commons, and there is no side stage, right? They're just, it's a festival. They're just bringing people on and off, on and off, on and off. So I actually had my own riser. So not only did I had this, I had to set up the band do the whole changeover and then I loaded everything. We had 15 minutes to get everything up. So I'm in, I'm in mode and I'm loading all the sequences and everything. And I'll never forget looking up and getting ready to start the show and not seeing a million people. It wasn't that big, but seeing like 40,000 people in the audience at the Boston Commons, just packed into this big giant square. And I was like, I'm so nervous right now. I was literally shaking because that was the biggest crowd that i've ever had to play in front and i have to start the whole show and it was like it was i i, I was i got stage fright i got really really nervous but then you just kind of go into that machine mode and you just that's the good thing about touring is you just like you rob you know when you hear something you know long enough you just know what to do and you just kind of go into that mode and, well, and, then, and that's why it's so important to rehearse so much and sound yeah. check so much because you're going to rely on muscle memory whether you yeah. like like that's your body's exactly, going to take over exactly. so that was that was performing wise i got two other smart small stories one of them is um the very first time i was actually a, a mixer on a giant project um post-production I'm in my studio and this is the first time clients are gonna come in. And the very first commercial I ever mixed was for the Army Be All That You Can Be campaign years ago. And I just remember sitting there and I turn around and I see all these men in uniform as well as the agency people in my bay. And this is my first time mixing and i'll be perfectly honest i was a little bit over my head at that time <laughs> i kind of got the job on the in the back door <laughs> and uh and it was just i was like okay sink or swim thank god i i swam um but that was it but actually the last story i was going to tell you about being nervous was actually our very first podcast because i asked rob and i asked scott and martin and bobby to to be on the podcast i thought oh, that's be a great idea let's do a podcast so i'll never forget sitting there and everybody comes around and we're going to have this whole intro and I, I get the whole thing ready and have it all set up and then we start and i start the intro it was a different intro at that time and i'll never forget looking up from the microphone and then seeing everybody just staring at me and then having to realize Oh, I got to drive this sh <laughs> this shit. <laughs> it's like, I, and I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And if you listen to episode number one, which you can, Audio Nowcast, I tell you, it sounds like a bunch of accountants. We, we sound so, so like, 
oh, welcome to the audio nowcast, and uh, we are professionals. And uh, yeah, it was hilarious. But now it's like we just don't care. <laughs> so, so we'll say anything. Oh, oh, back then, we were in the middle of living the stories that we're now waxing the telling about. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, Mike. Before Fort- you stop, I got to I got to know how did so how did the gig with Martin go? Oh, Once you great. got over the 40,000 people and all of you that. Do you want to know something that's really cool? And I, I don't know, but like you get nervous. I'm playing in front of all these people. You get, And here's the thing. When you do um, a festival, you get a line check, but you don't get a sound check, right? right. So you don't know how your instrument sounds through yep. the whole PA. You just know how it sounds through your monitor because the, the monitor guy will you know flip it back to you, but you don't know the whole PA. So – once I got like over the whole nervousness, I was like, listen to how big those keyboards sound. <laughs> it was just, I could not believe it, it was literally the, the biggest, most awesome sound ever. And then you just kind of go on the flow. The, the problem was, and I'll be honest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little behind the scenes stuff. I didn't play a lot of parts because we had a lot of it was sequenced. So I was side stage. So I just did a little chord here, a little note there, blah, blah, blah. But I'm on, I'm on a riser, right? And so you're on a riser and you just don't want to be this guy who just sits on songs that you're not playing because I didn't play every song. So what I ended up doing was air keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> Since I knew the music, I just Art. pretended like I was playing parts because I'm like, I am not going to be up here and just, and just sit. It's just, and there's no place for me to go. It's not like I could leave the stage. And I literally was like, I was on a riser here, the drummer was here, and the other keyboard player was there. And thank God I had all my racks of all my stuff because I was running all the sequencers and the samplers. So I had the gear, I just didn't have the parts. So I made up the parts. It was it was pretty fun. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I'll tell you, it was, it was you know, you just, it, I was nervous, but at the end you feel really kind of okay. But I, I know how that nervousness can like, you know, it really can affect you and it affects different people differently, you know, and, and yeah. maybe you, I, I commend you Tamara for like, you know, you know what you want, you know what you don't want. Right. I mean, you didn't enjoy the whole performing thing. Was it, um, you know, I don't mean to pry, but were you just anxious or were you just really critical of yourself or, or. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, Brandon was talking about the open mic circuit. I think that's where we all kind of get started. I would in LA, like, gosh, like eight years ago now, I would show up to open mics with my guitar that I could barely play and put my name down and then shake. <laughs> they would. It's just like an open mic at like some yeah. random coffee shop in LA. And I would just shake and shake and shake. And I'd like bring a friend and then like, They'd be like, okay, up next is Tamara Laurel. And I would start crying and I would leave. I did that for a full year, you guys, a year of my life. And whoever I brought with me, like a friend or whatever, would have to tell them like, oh, she's not going to play. And I'd like leave and like cry and go get like in and out burger and like try to feel better and be like, one day I'm going to do this one day. Anyway, flash forward. So that's how bad it was. It was anxiety. I wasn't a good guitar player. I like feel comfortable with my voice in a circuit, certain pocket, but like I don't have a lot of control over it when I'm anxious. I just, it was just all the things. I'm also an overthinker, like a lot of songwriters. So it just was such a stressful situation. And I thought it was a rite of passage. And I guess in some ways it is, mm. 
but like it's also not you know what i mean some people are just natural performers so flash forward i i did that for a year in la and then um I would have like a goal list and every month they would be like, number one, play an open mic. And I'd be like, oh, no, <laughs> maybe next month. So flash forward, I won a songwriting contest on like one of the first, the first song I ever recorded, won the songwriting contest. And the prize, which was so great for everybody else, was like $5,000 and a show at House of Blues Sunset. So everybody else, there were like five finalists. They were like so excited. And I'm like, well, I really, I want the money to make a record. But I was like, so upset that I had to play at the House of Blues. And I had two months, I think, from when I found out, I had two months to like get it together. So like literally that night, I found some random open mic up in Malibu off of like Zuma Beach. I don't know if you guys have been to the Sunset Restaurant up there. They have like a great open mic every Thursday. I just showed up and was like, I got to do this and suffered through it. I played two open mics and then I played the House of Blues Sunset, which was, I think, a disaster. But in hindsight, <laughs> in hindsight, now that I'm a songwriter and like don't really care about that anymore, it's like a fantastic story, you know? And the week leading up to that, I didn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was a wreck. So, yeah. But after that, after that show, the House of Blues, I never had stage fright again. Well, that's good. So the, the, the thing, Tamara, there is a huge difference between doing something where you're, it's just you and your guitar and your voice because you are so exposed and you're all by yourself. Doing it with a band is a whole different thing because you've got the energy of, you know, the three or four other people around you and you guys are going out as a squad, you know, and it just, it, it gives you a level of support. I wonder how you would have felt if you had you know, a drummer and a keyboard player and a bass player behind you. So at the House of Blues, I did. And like, I still though, because I was insistent that I was going to play the guitar and I wrote every word and I'm singing every word and I'm leading this band that had practiced twice before we played mm. the House I still, and to your point, like, I'm a very, like, as a solo songwriter and as an artist, and I will say, I'm still a studio artist. I still release things that are, you know, like from my heart that I love, but I just, I'm not going to tour them, you know, but I still like release things. I feel like an artist at heart, just not commercially. But the things that I write as an artist, they're very vulnerable and like kind of like left of center in a way that like I would be playing these shows and like, I'm so, I feel so exposed, like you're saying, it's just me and a guitar. And I'm also saying things that like the average person probably like wouldn't say. So people kind of are looking at you like, she's really saying that. And then you're like, do I sound bad? I'm a horrible guitar player. Like it just is like this spiral. So yeah, it is like a very exposing. I felt like people were like looking into my soul and like taking things away from me. Mm. But a band, a good band is like the best feeling. Well, hey, listen, um, we're going to be wrapping it up. Um, and Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we're going to play a little bit of uh, one of her songs because she, she, she does some pretty awesome stuff. Um, and this is, uh, let me just get this all set up and ready to roll. Green cat 
Video and I could have given you guys hilarious commentary over it. You like, could have. We still would have heard you. That guy, um, the actor, he landed a role in 13 Reasons Why right after that, and that, like blew up. And all the comments on the on the video are like, "Who is this chick? Why is she making out with my crush?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> but. You know what though? I gotta tell you, you put yourself out there in a yeah. vulnerable way. I mean, I gotta give it, gotta give you props on that. I, I just you, showed up, and the director told me what to do, and then <laughs> I was in my twenties, so it lived. That is fifty thousand times more vulnerable than you know playing live than, than playing. Yeah, than being out on a, at an open mic somewhere with a with a microphone because that could be seen by anybody and anything, and that's that's really putting yourself out there. That's but it sounded awesome. great. It sounded lovely. Well, hey, listen, we got to wrap it up. Uh, before we get going, uh, does anybody, uh, Nick, you working on anything you talk about right now? Um, um, sure. Uh, I'll be able to tell, talk about something big next time because it hasn't okay. been released yet. Um, then, you know, the, the, the thing about, of course, the, uh, this COVID situation is that um, what I do at Disney is 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 wonderful because people want entertainment and we need stuff that we can use that doesn't involve a big production set and all of those kinds of things. And so I've been recording a ton of audiobooks and a ton of stories and various things that involve, you know, just a narrator working locally in their booth. And I'm very happy that we're able to, you know, keep getting stuff out there um, right now. That's fantastic. How about you, Brandon? You uh, You working on anything? Any good sound stuff? Yeah, I just wrapped a uh, production on a new sound design collection today for trailer stuff. And uh, so now I'm in the fun metadata tagging stage and prepping it for release. Hey, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, and yeah. you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Is is the new release, does it have some of the Jet stuff that you recorded? Oh, no, the Jet stuff went out, I don't know, a while ago. That was last oh. year. Oh, the Jets. Uh, I heard some of Brett's Jet stuff, and that was amazing. Oh, yeah. The, just yeah, so you we guys went- know... Go ahead and tell them really quick. Oh, yeah. So we, me and Brett went on a, I would call it a poaching sound mission because we didn't, you know, we don't have access to like jets on an aircraft carrier. So we went to the, uh, I think it's a Pacific Air Show or whatever it's called down in Huntington Beach uh, last year and just showed up. I rented a boat, a little pontoon for, 
you know, uh, not a big one just for me and Brett and the captain. And we went out there and we were like right under the jets and there's, you know, F 35s and like uh, all sorts of, you know, blue angels and all kinds of stuff. We got some dynamite stuff that it worked out really well. It was amazing. I've heard it and I've heard, and, and Brett has a library coming out based on the same stuff. And it's like, it's, they were so close and they had the right gear to handle all the high SBLs. And it just sounds so good. I mean, if you're into sound design, you need to look for Brett's library and you need to look for Brandon's stuff. Hey, Rob, how about we, you? you? We didn't We didn't have the right gear. Uh, <laughs> it, it worked out, though. <laughs> it worked out because you don't hear any distortion at all. So, and no, it, frankly, I'm saying it, it, it worked out because I was surprised that my uh, – how amazingly low the, that sank in CSS5 is only like a max SPL 120, which I was yeah. like, what? should wow. be higher. So, but we were at the right distance where, you know, it was fine. So it worked out. It's, it sounds great. That's all I'm going to tell you. Rob, how about you? You working <laughs> on anything you talk about? Um, not too much I can talk about right now, but uh, that ding that you may have heard from my phone about a minute ago, yeah. exactly. Andrew and Joanne from Dave Smith Instruments uh, sending their love and saying hi to the podcast and not knowing we're doing <laughs> one tonight. They just wanted me to say hi to you. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so that great. Time. That's so and, great. And I am, uh, I'm working on some things I'll be able to talk about soon. Much more on the software and technology side rather than uh, producing anything right now. I wish I could have the studio full of people and we could be collaborating. But I, I've been consulting yeah. with a bunch of artists and helping people plan their releases and doing some remote production. But for now, this pandemic has been more about technology and education and that kind of stuff. There's well, no question great. that all of the collaboration stuff that we're all doing is somebody creates a layer of stuff, then they Dropbox it to somebody else, and then yeah. they work on it, and then it comes back. And yeah, that, that real-time communication, I miss it terribly. You're absolutely yeah. right, Rob. How about uh, you, Tamara? Is there anything you can talk about? I mean, um, anything you want to plug? Um, I'm going to be releasing just some fun stuff as like a studio artist. Um, Handful of cuts that I wrote, other artists are releasing. Can't really announce those on their behalf, but right. You no, know, just just some song stuff. Hey, if people want to follow you, what's the best way? Um, uh, Tamara Laurel on all the things, okay. uh, Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> all that, all that stuff. I don't know what's like the cool thing these days. TikTok, I don't know. <laughs> Instagram, I just, Facebook, all Snapchat. Yeah, I, I just go and sign up my name and. <laughs> well also if you google Tamara laurel a bunch of stuff comes up that's how i found the music video so it's pretty cool all righty well hey listen uh if you have any comments or questions you could reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com that's audio at nowcastnetwork.com from myself and all the gang thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time we're coming to hear you on open mic night joanne Thanks for listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wireworld Pro Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and features a panel with Rob Arbitier, Bobby Osinski, Scott Gershon, Nick Peck, Diego Stucco, Brandon Birdside, Martin Page, Bobby Summerfield, and maybe a guest or two. We'll see you next time. <laughs>